Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm your host, Aaron White, and excited to bring you three reviews in this episode. Quick plug for social media. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at Feelin Film. If you want to follow me on Letterboxd, you can find me at Aaron L. White. That's A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Rest of the socials are always in the show notes, and we would love to have you come join the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group, interact with us on Repod, etc. Also, if you haven't done so already, we'd love for you to give the show five stars on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify and anywhere else that you listen, really. It helps get us noticed more in the eyes of other listeners and can increase the group of people that we can have conversations with. Here on FF Plus, the format is very straightforward. I cover what I liked, what I didn't like, and I give you a recommendation about whether I think a film is worth your time and money. That's it. Simple, short, and spoiler-free. The first of two series we have to review in this episode is The Dropout from Searchlight Television and 20th Television. It stars Amanda Seyfried, Naveen Andrews, Utkarsh Ambudkar, Kate Burton, Michael Gill, Lisa Gay Hamilton, William H. Macy, Elizabeth Marvel, Lori Metcalf, Dylan Minnette, Alan Ruck, Sam Waterston, and Michaela Watkins. The series is executive produced by showrunner Elizabeth Merriweather, Liz Heldens, Liz Hanna, Catherine Pope, Rebecca Jarvis, Victoria Thompson, and Taylor Dunn. Michael Showalter directs multiple episodes and also serves as an executive producer alongside his producing partner, Jordana Mollock. What's it about? Money, romance, tragedy, deception. This limited series is the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. It's an unbelievable tale of ambition and fame gone terribly wrong. How did the world's youngest self-made female billionaire lose it all in the blink of an eye? Now, this is the first of a couple of properties that are going to be coming out based on the Elizabeth Holmes story, I believe, this year. There's a Jennifer Lawrence movie in the works as well, but... If you're not familiar with Theranos, essentially it goes like this. Elizabeth Holmes, this starts with her in high school, and it moves really quickly in the first episode or two, kind of rocket firing her up to the point where she's creating this thing. But she starts in high school, and she's got big dreams. Her parents have been successful. They're well off. She wants to go to Stanford, and her dream is to invent a product. And she's clearly very intelligent. She has a lot of knowledge about computers and chemistry. She ends up going on this overseas trip and meeting a businessman named Sonny Balwani that she forms a relationship with. Ultimately, she comes back home. She goes to Stanford for a little while, but she keeps having this dream and and She comes upon this idea, and the idea behind Theranos is essentially, what if you could test your blood for various diseases, and you could do it with just a drop of blood on a little bitty cartridge or piece of paper, and you'd put it into a machine, and you could do it anywhere in the world, and it would be so much faster, so much simpler than what we have now, which is a much more detailed and intricate process for your blood to be tested accurately. And so she goes about essentially 
working to fund this startup company, finding the right chemists to help work on this, finding the right tech people to help work on this. And it covers her rise into a woman who is a boss and has been become a dropout of college, hence the name. And she just is all about inventing this thing. And she's a fascinating, fascinating person. The whole thing is filmed with the vibe of the social network. That's really the best way I can put it to you. Right down to the music, it has an electronic score by Ann Nicotin that I t- I'm telling you, it sounds like it could literally be the music of Reznor and Ross. I don't know how I feel about that. It gives the series an energy and a propulsiveness to it that I like, but boy, it feels like a ripoff at times. There's moments where we also cut back and forth, not a lot, but between real-time present for the show, which is Elizabeth Holmes being deposed once this whole thing has come under investigation, and then the past, where she's kind of, we're watching her story as it comes up. It's a really interesting tale about a person who goes by this mindset of what would you attempt to do if you knew that you could not fail? She is so driven to do this. And there's a lot of goodwill behind it. I truly believe that's what we see and is probably the truth about Elizabeth Holmes is that I think she started off with a dream of creating something that could change the world. And we see her get to this point where success is more important than getting it right. And often she goes to her downfall. Now, I haven't watched all of the series. I had a blast. I've watched three of the episodes so far. I believe it's going to be six episodes in total when it comes out. The main performance by Amanda Seyfried is outstanding. Elizabeth Holmes is kind of known for having a very unique, strange accent. The way that she speaks and her mannerism and Amanda Seyfried does a great job of nailing that. And and I think it just it it's a really well-paced show so far. Maybe a little padded. I could see it moving a lot faster than it is, but we draw out pretty much everything for drama in these series. And frankly, if it's only 6 episodes, that's a lot less than many shows stretch their stuff out to. So, I'm not going to knock it too much for that. It looks good. You know, it sounds good, like the social network. And I'm definitely excited to watch the rest of it and see how it turns out. It's available streaming on Hulu starting on March the 3rd with the first three episodes. The ones I've seen will be available. And then after that, the the rest of them will release on a weekly basis. Definitely say check this one out if you have any interest whatsoever in the story of Theranos. If you don't know anything about this, and you are just captivated by really smart and rich people who fail brilliantly and try to ultimately gain their success by less than an integral means, you should watch this, and it's going to keep you entertained, and it's going to also be informative. The second series I have to talk about is called Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty from HBO. 
It stars John C. Riley, Jason Clark, Adrian Brody, Quincy Isaiah, Sally Field, Jason Siegel, Tracy Letts, Dr. Solomon Hughes, Adley Robinson, and many more. Adam McKay is directing the pilot and also producing along with Kevin Messick. Max Borenstein serves as the showrunner, the executive producer, the writer, and also a co-creator. Jim Hecht is a co-writer of the story. Jason Schumann, Scott Stevens, and Rodney Burns also join as executive producers. This is based on the book Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s, written by Jeff Perlman. What's it about? It's a fast break, 10 episode series about the professional and personal lives of the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers, one of sports' most revered and dominant dynasties, a team that defined an era both on and off the court. Full disclosure, I am a lifelong Lakers fan, so I've been quite excited about this for a while, ever since it was announced. I've been looking forward to it. Even though I'm not the biggest Adam McKay fan, I had my reservations about him being the one to adapt this work, but I know he's a big basketball fan, and I had to cross my fingers and hope that he would do it justice. The series starts off in the early 80s. Well, actually, it starts off at the end. We see Magic Johnson right off the bat, essentially in a clinic, being diagnosed with AIDS, and then from that point on, we flash back. We never really flash forward again after that, so it's an interesting way to start it off. But the series begins with Magic being in college and Jerry Buss waking up one morning in the midst of this house that he owns full of sexually promiscuous women and men. It's just, it's a a very lavish lifestyle that he lives. And he starts talking to the camera about how he is going to buy the Lakers. And there's a lot of this fourth wall breaking that happens throughout the series. John C. Riley does a great job as Dr. Jerry Buss, I think, but he does the most talking to the audience. Other characters will do it occasionally. And it's sometimes kind of jarring, honestly, because it doesn't happen all the time. And you're never quite sure when it's going to occur. Characters could be having a conversation and then all of a sudden one or two lines will be directed towards us, the screen. So once you are looking for it, it's a lot easier to notice. But that first few times you're like, whoa, what's, is this going to be a thing? Or am I misinterpreting? Is there somebody off camera? Nope, they're talking to you. Quincy Isaiah plays Magic Johnson and Dr. Solomon Hughes plays Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I think they both do a fantastic job. And this is a really critical piece of this series because casting those two roles and not getting them right would really sink this, in my opinion. By choosing two actors who are largely unknown, we're able to feel like their magic and Kareem a lot easier than if we were seeing an actor that we were familiar with and immediately having to compare this to the rest of their filmography. Now, the rest of the actors, a lot of them are highly recognizable. Jason Clark plays Jerry West, currently the coach, the former star of the Lakers, who famously was an outstanding player, got made literally into the logo. His shadow is the logo of the NBA, but couldn't beat the Celtics, and he's harboring all sorts of trauma, essentially, 
from that experience. But in comes Jerry Buss. He's going to buy the Lakers. He wants to draft Magic Johnson and thus bring about what would become known as Showtime. And this is that story. I've watched a few of the episodes and really enjoyed it. It's shot in a grainy old VHS tape kind of cinematography. In fact, it looks out of focus a lot. It really drives me nuts. If you've seen Boogie Nights, think that styling. It's kind of got that vibe to the production design and the way that the camera looks. But man, it is just something about it that I think they went too far. I think they really tried to get too fancy with making that VHS style tape look. And I just, I don't get it. I don't. It feels like a gimmick to me. I don't need to watch it through that lens to know it's in the 80s and understand it. And the the out-of-focus stuff just kind of bothered me quite a bit. There's a lot of sex. There's alcohol, glamour, money, style. This is about LA and about how the city and this basketball team kind of came to represent each other in certain ways and how that lavish lifestyle of many of the rich and famous in the city and many of the people in the Lakers organization influenced Magic Johnson and some of the players and how their lives would progress with regards to their personal relationships and interactions with people. One thing that is fascinating to me is that nobody really feels like a good person fully in this. Everybody is shown to be a little bit exaggerated. There's a comedic styling to this. Everyone kind of feels like an asshole at times, and it didn't make it the most enjoyable journey. They eventually slow it down for some moments here and there, and I really appreciated that because towards the end of, I've watched again three episodes of this one so far, and there are the feelings that it's becoming more like a traditional Friday Night Lights sports drama, which I would like a lot more. The Adam McKay, highly comedic, fourth wall stuff just doesn't work for me. It's fine to mix it in a little bit and give it that high energy experience, but it just doesn't work over 10 full episodes. I need the drama and I need it to be serious. And it seems like we're headed in that direction. I did want to point out something that is interesting here. I'm just going to read it verbatim per the Hollywood Reporter's recent article. But the show for which McKay and company are already prepping a second season hasn't been without its share of behind-the-scenes drama, including the proverbial nail in the coffin of one of Hollywood's most fruitful friendships. The Lakers, now run by Jerry Buss's daughter, Jeannie Buss, played by Hadley Robinson, who, by the way, I absolutely love in this major crush on Hadley Robinson's Jeannie Buss. The NBA and the athletes that Winning Time portrays, none of them are profiting from the series, much less have any creative input, and they allegedly detest its very existence. League lawyers have reached out about the use of NBA trademarks and logos, and at least a few associated with the Showtime Lakers era have expressed concerns about the series having no plans to whitewash the unsavory parts of NBA life. That's what I was getting at when it's not showing you players as just players. It's showing you all of the drugs and sex and the attitudes that they have behind the scenes. And it's all 
dramatized and fictionalized because they don't have the actual input of the players and people that are being portrayed themselves. So it's all secondhand. And that is a little bit concerning. So I think you just need to watch it, take it with a grain of salt, understand that they weren't involved. That's always important to know. And, you know, go take it from there. Uh, watch it as a piece of fictionalized entertainment based on something that you know, or maybe you didn't know, but just don't watch it as a documentary, I guess, is where I'm going with this. There are, is going to be a documentary coming, I believe, sometime later in the year that both Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson are contributing to. I'm actually more excited for that because I love the real life stories and I want to hear it from the people who experienced its mouths. But I'm sure that this is still going to be entertaining and that's what I will get from it. It'll be available on HBO and streaming on HBO Max on March the 6th. And there will be 10 full episodes of this, as I mentioned. It'll be released weekly, like most of HBO's shows. And I'll be there every week checking it out and hoping that it just gets better and better and better. And last but not least, we have our one film for this episode, The Batman, coming from WB Pictures. It stars Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano, Jeffrey Wright, John Turturro, Peter Sarsgaard, Andy Serkis, and Colin Farrell. It is directed by Matt Reeves, written by Matt Reeves and Peter Craig, and based on characters by DC Comics. What's it about? During his second year of fighting crime, Batman pursues the Riddler, a serial killer who targets elite Gotham City citizens. He uncovers corruption that connects to his own family during the investigation and is forced to make new allies to catch the Riddler and bring the corrupt to justice. Now, I was lucky enough to go into this completely cold. I didn't watch a single trailer for this movie. I avoided them like crazy. And boy, am I glad that I did because while I knew we were going to get Riddler, we are going to get some Penguin because of the casting announcements, we are going to get Catwoman, being able to experience how they portrayed those characters for the first time in the context of the story was really great. Things to know about this movie. This is a hard PG-13. I'm actually kind of surprised that it's not R. It gets dark. Seriously, it feels like somewhat of a combination of a, a Batman story with David Fincher's Seven and Zodiac as the tone of it. The Riddler is truly a sadistic serial killer in this. I mean, he is a maniac, psychopath, murderer. It's not comicalized. It is very grounded and it feels like very realistic and gritty and dark in modern ways. So I'm a little curious how audiences are going to react to this. He's pretty scary and not at all to be taken lightly. Later in the film, there's a big climax that happens that is even more of a, oh my gosh, they did that moment that takes a modern fear and escalates it and puts it into this world in a way that, again, it is, it's terrifying, frankly. And I really am wondering how parents are going to feel if they try to take younger kids this movie. So I'm telling you now, it's dark, it's gritty, it's brooding and emo the whole time, and it is not for young children, in my opinion, at all. 
This is not the comic book characters that they've seen before. They're not cutesy little comic book outfits and funny phrases. And they're not like shooting off silly little like fake types of attacks that don't actually hurt people. It is an actual dark crime thriller in a superhero movie. It's also a detective movie, and I absolutely loved that. So it's three hours long, and it is an almost fully runtime three hours. Like, it is a lengthy, lengthy film. And a lot of that is spent with Batman doing investigation. So it's the Riddler doing something, and then Batman having to follow these clues, figure things out, put it together, learn a piece of the puzzle, move forward, do that again. I really enjoyed getting to see this detective side of Batman in action in the way that I don't know if we've seen in live action. We've seen it in small bursts during some films, but it is the entire kind of thing that this movie hinges on at its core, and that was really cool. If you're familiar with the year one Batman story, it's got a lot of the tone of that, right? It's year two. It's a very much younger Bruce Wayne. Jim Gordon is not commissioner yet. They're working together. They they have a trust that's been built between them, but none of the other police trust them. There's this corruption that they're trying to uncover, and so they increasingly have to rely on one another as it goes. Catwoman, obviously, is in this movie. Really dug the relationship between she and Batman and how it's portrayed. Probably my second favorite overall behind Christian Bale and Anne Hathaway. But I will say this, in almost all of the live actions that we've had with Catwoman, it seems like they've done a really great job of making the Catwoman character match that Batman. And this Catwoman is a perfect fit for this Batman. Zoe Kravitz is amazing. She is probably the highlight performance-wise in the film for me. I think she's just mesmerizing to watch, not just because she's beautiful, but because she hits a lot of different notes in this from uh, an emotional perspective. Her range is wider than that of Pattinson, for example. When it comes to him, I think he's great as Batman. He's got a physical presence about him and a, a scowl that is perfectly fitting and I think that he he does a great job of communicating with his body language. He doesn't talk a lot as Batman, which is kind of nice and pretty realistic per some of the darker comics like this. He says very little with words, and it works. It, it works for this character very well. What I don't care for as much is him as Bruce Wayne, the completely brooding, emo-like down in the dumps, depressed character just doesn't work for me. Maybe it would if it was part of a two-hour movie, but instead it's the whole of a three-hour movie. That's how he is. The whole way through the thing. Every time he's Bruce Wayne, he looks like he's just sad and going to go cry in a corner in the rain, and it drove me nuts. I just couldn't get to the point where I was enjoying that. It felt like a little bit of a boring slog anytime that he wasn't in the cape and the cowl. Luckily, he spends most of his time in the cape and the cowl, kicking butt, solving crimes, doing his detective stuff. The action in this is great. 
I immediately thought to myself, wow, someone has played the Arkham games because the combat in a couple of different sections feels just like a live action version of Arkham Asylum, Arkham City, and Arkham Knight, those video games. He is kinetic. He's moving. He looks like the fight choreography is fantastic. It just looks great. And there's a lot of different moves that happen, a lot of different hand-to-hand style, but also use of, you know, random different things from the environment in order to assist him, which is a very Batman thing to do. He's extremely resilient and creative, and that comes through in this movie quite a bit. Tech-wise, we get some cool new tech. There's a new Batmobile, you know, a new Bat Cycle. There's these cool contact lenses that serve as like recording cameras that are really awesome. He's got like a wingsuit. There's some other fun stuff in there as well. The movie is very dark in general, like from a lighting perspective, it's almost all at nighttime. And even when it's daytime, it's just a sort of horizon glow of oranges and reds and yellows. That's really mostly the color that you get in this. And otherwise it's pretty bleak and black and rainy. It's just not a a very lively feel to it. Gotham feels down in the dumps and everything about the characters and the shots, the cinematography kind of matches that. The cinematography, I will say, is great and looks amazing. There's a lot of different scenes in this that you'll want to find a screenshot of to make your desktop background, that kind of stuff. The score by Michael Giacchino is phenomenal. I absolutely love it. It matches the tone of this and the cinematography of this style perfectly. Overall, I really liked this, but it's not my favorite Batman. I like quite a few of the others better. Probably my favorite film of the year, you know, going right now. I think it's a very, very strong four-star movie. And I almost hate to say that, but I want to give you guys perspective because I hate The extremism that happens where there's going to be a subset of people that are like, oh, it's like an A24 with a budget Batman movie. And there's people who are going to like adore it and think that you're crazy for not giving it five stars. And there's people that are going to absolutely hate it because it doesn't feel anything like a very lighter toned comic book movie that you're used to or superhero type of movie. And I just reject both of those wholeheartedly. I think there's tons of elements of this that make it a really great and enjoyable watch, but I also think there's plenty that just, it falls short for me. You know, I think it could have been a lot shorter as well in general, just to, since I just said that and it triggered that in my mind, you know, the three hour runtime, it's a lot and it's a pretty heavy kind of movie to sit with that tone for three full hours. I would have liked it to be a little tighter, but All in all, really great project. Not sold on where it might be going from here. You do get a little bit of a tease into what they have planned next. And I don't know that I love it. Doesn't necessarily work for me. We can talk about that once you've seen it, though. The movie will be in theaters on March the 4th. And I am absolutely saying, yes, you should go. But with all of the caveats, I think this is a movie that it's important. The embargo is coming out early for. And I hope that you're listening to this, and I hope that people will get the word out that this is not for younger children. It's not. Teenagers, it's fine. They'll be able to handle it. I don't know how many of them are going to love it, 
Because in it, Marvel, it's not the MCU, guys. It's not that. And it's not even the DCEU. They're not doing that kind of superhero stuff in this. Cannot stress enough how dark and gritty this is. So go in with that understanding, and hopefully you'll come out and have a blast and enjoy the heck out of it for what it is. Well, that's it for this week on FF+. Plus. Hopefully something I've said has helped you to make a decision. If you do see one of these movies, be sure to seek me out on social media, find me on Repod, and let us know how you feel. Thank you for listening as always. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling built.